We are so excited that you have decided to join in with this week's message. Trey is teaching on the subject of caught in the act. So many people have fallen victim to premarital sexual sin. So what do we do if we have blown it sexually? Let's listen in as we discover God's solution to our broken situation. I want us to look at an interesting passage from John chapter 8 tonight. As we pick up with our fifth installment of our relationship status series that we've been in. So if you would, go with me to John chapter 8. And starting in verse 2, the scriptures say this. Early in the morning, he, he being Jesus, came again to the temple. And all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. I want to speak to you for the next few moments on the subject of caught in the act. Caught in the act. We've just been introduced here in John chapter 8 to a woman that has been caught in the act of sexual immorality. More specifically, adultery. She stepped out on her marriage, she has stepped out on her husband, and she has committed this act of sin with another man. So what you might say is, is that she had technically just blown it sexually when it came to honoring God and the parameters that He has placed around sex. And she had also just blown it when it came to honoring her husband and honoring her marriage. Sexual purity is something that is very, 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 very important to God. So important that he laid a boundary all the way around it to keep it sacred and to keep it holy and to keep it as an act of worship unto him. And he placed it specifically within the covenant relationship of marriage. But the reality is, tonight, that more than likely, there are several of us in here that just like this woman have quote-unquote blown it sexually. Statistics would say that just within this country that we live in, 90% of people have engaged in premarital sex. 90%. And tonight, I'm not even just strictly talking about sexual intercourse. I'm talking about sexual immorality. It is all inclusive. Some of you may say, well, you know what? I've never blown it sexually because I've never had actual sexual intercourse, but that doesn't mean that you're not diving into sexual immorality by crossing boundaries that God placed for you not to cross. And the way in which you can Tell whether or not you're crossing that boundary or not is if you're having to ask the question, well, is this too far? If you're asking that question, is this too far? Then I promise you, it's too far. Because God does not lay any gray areas around what is permissible and what is not permissible when it comes to the context of sexual contact. It's within the covenant relationship of marriage. And that's it. So some of you are sitting here tonight, and I think the overwhelming majority of us sitting here tonight have already, quote-unquote, blown it sexually. And you're sitting here caught in the act, and you're wondering, what does that mean for me? The one thing that God has asked that I keep reserved for one person is already gone in my life. So what does that mean for me? 
Will I ever find somebody who will love and marry me anyway? I mean, there's no way, right? There's no way that a godly man, there's no way that a godly woman who has kept themselves pure for marriage would ever marry somebody that hasn't, right? There's no way that's actually going to happen. Who would want to be with somebody like that? Man. That's why I want us to dive in even deeper into this woman's situation that we find in John chapter 8. Because if you look at verse 3, one thing that you'll notice right off the bat is that she was deceived. She was deceived. Go back and look at verse 3. It says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. The text tells us that the Pharisees had caught this woman in the act of committing adultery, which would have actually been quite difficult for them to do. It would have been quite difficult for them to actually catch this woman in the act because it's not like things are today, right? There's not social media. There's not text messages. You can't go out and pull phone records to see her having interactions with this guy leading up to something that shouldn't have happened. Nobody's snapping pictures of everything that you do within your life. So it would have been actually quite hard for them to catch this woman in the physical act of committing adultery. People that have adulterous affairs don't very often make it just a publicly broadcasted thing. They would have been very secretive about doing this. And in all honesty, what the Pharisees really wanted to do was back Jesus into a corner. They wanted to back Jesus into a corner, hoping that the way in which he responded to this woman's situation would give them grounds to have him arrested. And so most scholars, actually, when it comes to this passage, would make the suggestion that this woman was deceived, that this woman was duped, that this woman was set up by the Pharisees because their intentions was really to trap Jesus. So they laid this trap out for this woman because they thought they'd hatched this perfect plan where they could get Jesus wedged into a corner to where he would have to give an answer that would ultimately lead to his conviction. And so the plot's laid out. They recruit some man to seduce this woman, to tempt this woman, to get her to give in to the desires that she was having. He gave her that sweet talk, you know. Like, he probably stood up at her house one day and he gave her a compliment that she hadn't been given in quite some time because she's been married. And, you know, after 15, 20 years of marriage, sometimes you don't get the same compliments from your man that you got when you first started dating and when you first got married. So he slides in, he gives her a little compliment that she hadn't had in a while. And he makes her feel good about herself. And he begins to tell her things like this, I imagine. Well, you know what? I mean, who's going to find out? Who's going to find out? Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to know. And they probably had a, a little relationship going on the side for a little bit. So she was feeling comfortable around him. So maybe he, he slid something else into her mind. Well, I mean, come on, babe. We're in love. We love each other. Two people that love each other, this is what they do. Nobody's going to find out. And even if they do, so what? We're in love. This is how people who are in love express themselves. Or maybe he gave them one of these. Everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is doing it. Why can't we just join in on the fun that everybody else is partaking in? Or maybe he gave her this. You know, in reality, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. Listen to me, guys. This is exactly how the enemy works. 
This is exactly how the enemy works. And most of you, I would imagine, that have fallen victim to sexual sin in your life. You've heard these same kind of lies. Some of you are sitting there thinking, wow, some of the things that you're saying, they sound kind of familiar to me because you've probably been tempted, you've probably been deceived along the same lines. The enemy has spun these same web of lies in front of you to deceive you into thinking that there's really nothing that bad about it. Everybody else is doing it anyway because that's what he does. He did it at the beginning when Adam and Eve were in the garden. Eve, did God really say? Did he really say, don't eat that fruit from that tree? Maybe he just knows that you'll be like him if you do. Maybe he just knows you'll experience life in its fullness if you give yourself over to that thing. Maybe he's been in the same web of deception in front of you and you've taken the bait. Nobody will know. We love each other. Everybody else is doing it. It's no big deal. And so you give in to your desires thinking that it's okay. There won't be any consequences and there won't be any regrets. Deception. And so you give in to those desires and you make that choice. And I think that's important to understand as we move forward tonight that, yeah, he might throw the deception out in front of you, but you still make that choice. He didn't make the choice for you. So you see this woman, she's been deceived. And the second thing, now she's being accused. Look at verse 4. They said to him, the Pharisees, the religious people, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So they bring this woman before Jesus and they make the accusation that they have caught her in the act. And it's funny, it's interesting, right? The same voice that was just previously deceiving her, telling her that it would be fine, is now the same voice that is accusing her. Our spiritual enemy, the backstabber, He's a low baller, man. The same voice that dangles that deception in front of you and tells you it'll be all right and tells you that it won't be any big deal is the same voice that comes back into your life when you believe that lie and begins to accuse you of wrongdoing. This woman is being accused by the same people that deceived her into thinking it was all going to be okay. But I want you to understand this. Yes, she is being accused, but at the same time, she is absolutely guilty. That's why she never speaks up. She never once speaks up and denies the claims that they were making because she knows I'm guilty. I have been caught. And so these people, they're just berating her. You're guilty. We caught you. You screwed up now. You're in for it now. Do you know what kind of trouble you're going to be in? Come on, we're taking you to Jesus. You messed up. And for a, a lot of us, just like this woman, you sit here tonight, and in your heart, even though nobody else may know it, you've messed up bad sexually. And the enemy's deception in your life has now become his accusation in your life. And there's no doubt that we're guilty, right? There's no doubt that you are guilty. So he's making these accusations and he's just beating you over the head one after the other and we feel like that we have no defense and so we just stand there and we take it. 
She's just standing there, man. She's just taking this accusation. just beating her over the head with this sinful act that she's been caught in. She's standing there. She's taking it. Some of you are underneath the accusation of the enemy and you have no defense because you're guilty, right? So what else can you do other than stand there and just take it? Here's where it becomes damaging. Because what happens over time is that the enemy's accusations start to become our assumptions. If the accusations continue long enough, then sooner or later we just begin to assume that what he is saying about us must actually be true. Maybe I am a whore. Maybe I am perverted. Maybe I am ruined. Maybe I am damaged. Maybe I am a failure. Maybe I am a disappointment. All these accusations that he pours over your life, they continue and they continue and they continue. And the next thing you know, you begin to assume those things about your identity. And you sit here tonight underneath a mountain of accusations because of the mess that you're in. This woman has been deceived. Now she has been accused. And it progresses even further to the point where now, as we move into verse 5, She's being condemned. Look at verse 5. So they've thrown this woman in front of Jesus. They've accused her of being caught in the act of adultery. Now verse 5, they says this. Now in the law, Jesus, the Word became flesh. Let us give you a little history lesson in the Word in case you need it, which is foolishness altogether. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. She's being condemned. Now accusation has moved into condemnation. The Pharisees pointed out that the law ordered that a woman caught in the act of adultery be stoned to death. This is why some scholars think that this woman was led into a trap because the law also commanded that the man that was a part of this act as well be stoned also. But you never hear him mentioned in it. Which tells me this, ladies, you don't have to take all the guilt you don't have to take all the guilt. He's just as responsible. So now they're pronouncing judgment upon this woman. Cast her down, Jesus! She deserves to die. And it's always progressing with our enemy, right? It's always progressing. The enemy's deception in your life becomes his accusation over your life, which then becomes his condemnation on your life. It's a constant progression. Deception accusation and now condemnation and he is leading you down a road of just defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat and so we've seen this woman's situation laid out there before us and we've heard plenty about what others have had to say about it but that's when a question gets asked that becomes the absolute turning point in this entire narrative look at the last part of verse 5 They've thrown this woman in front of Jesus. They said, now the law says that this kind of woman should be stoned to death. And then they ask a question that changes everything. Look at what they say. They say, so what do you say? (laughs) They didn't realize it, but they just messed up in a bad way. Jesus, what do you say should be done about this woman? Now Jesus is about to give 
a solution to this woman's situation. And as we move into verse 6, where this woman was deceived, we see that Jesus isn't deceived. He's aware. He's aware. Look at verse 6. This they said to test him. Remember, they're trying to back Jesus into a corner. They're trying to deceive him. They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Jesus wasn't going to be deceived by this plot that the Pharisees had laid out. He was perfectly aware of their intentions. Perfectly aware of their intentions and what they were trying to do. But he was also perfectly aware of the mistake and the sin that this woman was in. Perfectly aware of everything that she had done. He knew what she had done. There was no hiding it from him. So if you've messed up sexually here tonight, you might hide it from everybody else in this room. And you might think that I've never been caught in the act. But I promise you there is a Holy Spirit of God that sees every facet of your life. And you cannot hide it from him. There's no point in trying to hide it from him. You will waste your energy trying to hide it from him. He knows. He is perfectly aware of everything that enters into our lives. He knows what you have done. He knows the choices that you have made. Jesus is aware of not only their intentions, he's aware of this woman's failures. He knows. But instead of joining in and accusing her, as we move into verse 7, Jesus does something completely different. And instead of her being accused by the Pharisees, she is now defended by Jesus. Look at verse 7. Jesus bent down and he's writing on the ground. And it says that they continue to ask him. So they're continuing to ask. Jesus is writing stuff on the ground. Nobody knows what exactly what he's writing. He's just drawing some stuff in the ground. I don't know what exactly what it is. But he's drawing this stuff out on the ground. They continue to, it says that they continued to ask him, Jesus, what do you say? What do you say should be done to this woman, Jesus? And after they ask him over and over and over again, getting frustrated, he won't answer. He finally just stands up. And he looks him in the eye. Look at what he says. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus stands up and he comes to this woman's defense. Now I want you to understand something here. As he stood up and he spoke on this woman's defense, he did not defend her on the premise of her innocence. Jesus never says she's innocent. Jesus never said you're falsely accusing this woman. He does not defend her on that premise. Instead, he defends her on the premise that not just her, but everybody else that is present is also guilty of having sin in their life. He does not downplay the seriousness of the sin that she has committed. But he stands up and he comes to her defense. Because the point that Jesus was making, not only just to this woman, but also to everybody else that was there listening to this conversation, was that his grace outweighs our guilt. His grace outweighs our guilt. So now instead of being accused, this woman is being defended by Christ. And as we move into verse 10, instead of being condemned by the Pharisees, this woman is about to be restored by Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 10. Excuse me, let's back up. Let's go to verse 8. It says, and once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So he stands up and he comes to this woman's defense. And what are you going to do about it, Jesus? The law says to stone her. He says, okay, 
Then whoever hears without sin, pick the first stone up and throw it at her. And one by one, starting with the eldest, they dropped their stones and they walked away. And now it's just Jesus and this poor woman left on the scene. In verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. It's funny that she calls him Lord there, right? She knew who he was. She had placed her faith in him as the Son of God. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Jesus is restoring this woman. And to restore means to give back, it means to return. It can mean to repair. It can mean to reinstate. And guys, is this not just exactly what our Savior is about doing in our lives? Jesus Christ restores broken lives. He repairs the things that we break. He's done it time and time again in my own life. And just in case you think that Jesus is incapable of doing in your life, what he has done in this woman's life, just in case that you think you've blown things sexually beyond repair and beyond restoration. Because I know some of you are sitting here tonight and you've got doubts already of whether or not Jesus can actually do this kind of complete work of restoration in your life. So that's great he did it for her, right? It's a great story, Trey. Thank you for sharing it with us. It's awesome that Jesus did this for this woman. But you don't know how bad I've messed up. You don't know how many times I have messed up. And there's no way that Jesus can take the mess that I have made and completely restore me and completely repair me. And if you think that is you, and I've asked somebody very, 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 very special and close to my heart to come and testify to the powerful healing of our Savior. Friends, I know there are some of you in here that unfortunately I've never even introduced myself to. So I'm Ashley and I'm Trey's wife, if you don't already know that. Um, Trey had asked me a couple weeks ago if I would share a little bit about my story with you tonight and a little bit about the work that God's done in my life. And so brief background, because you need to know this later on. Um, I grew up in a home where no one was saved. No one knew Jesus. I didn't know what it meant to be saved. Um, we did not go to church, and my dad was an alcoholic. So um, we had that, you know, going on all the time. Um, and this one particular day, I came home from softball practice, and apparently I had gotten home later than he thought I should, and he had gotten off work early and had been drinking a lot. And when I got home, um, he was getting on to me for being late, and he was just, you know, throwing all this stuff out there that, shame on you, you shouldn't have done this, shouldn't have done that. And I remember saying, Dad, I make straight A's. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't have sex. I barely ever even say a cuss word. Is that not enough? And his response was, no, that's not enough. You're just not good enough. And so I say that because um, that kind of became the theme of my life. I just believed that in everything. I believed you're not a good enough student. You're not a good enough daughter. You're not a good enough friend. You're not a good enough cheerleader. You're not a good enough anything. You're not skinny enough, pretty enough, funny enough. And so um, I had really, really, really poor self-image. Um, so that's kind of where I was. Trey and I went to high school together. He was my boyfriend when we were in seventh and eighth grade, and then we broke up. 
So then we tried to be boyfriend and girlfriend again in ninth grade, and then we broke up. And we did this a couple more times. But um, that time, I really didn't think we'd ever get back together. Trey was super shy. I would, like, say hey to him in the hallway, and he wouldn't even speak to me. He says he never heard me, but, like, wouldn't respond to me. So I was like, okay, we're, we're done. Um, so when we had broken up that time, um, I went to a Dixie Youth Baseball game with a friend from another school, and I met three of her guy friends, and one of them was so stinking cute. And I was so used, I was so used to all the guys giving attention to my friends because my friends were pretty enough and skinny enough. And so this guy gave me attention and he wanted my number and he started texting me and calling me at night and then we started dating. Um, I was 15 when we started dating um, and I dated him after I turned 16. And so um, I knew very quickly into the relationship that I should not be with him. Um, he was a lot like my dad was when my dad was drinking. He was very verbally abusive, controlling, manipulative. Um, but I just kept staying with him. And I was trying to think when I was preparing, like, why did I do that? And I really don't have an answer. Um, my mom thought he was such a gentleman, so polite. So, like, my mom liked him. And, and a lot of my friends were kind of jealous that I had met him first because he was so cute. And so I kind of liked that they were a little jealous that I was dating him. So I just stayed with him. Um, eventually, uh, I ended up doing some things that I wish I wouldn't have done and I couldn't take back. And, you know, I could just say that sentence and we could breeze by and get to the end of the night and whatever. But I don't think that's what the Lord wants. I think the Lord wants me to be very clear. So I chose to do things sexually with him that I should not have done. And eventually I did choose to have sex with him. And I say I chose, which is funny because you said I chose, but I chose that. It wasn't forced upon me. You know, I, I had a choice, and I chose to do that. And um, it was awful, and I regretted it. And it was something I knew I never could take back, um, and I knew it came with consequences. Main consequences for me were um, walking around every day full of just guilt and shame because that's what I did. I was just consumed by it. It made my self-esteem even worse, um, I used to be like a good girl, you know, and I, that was one of the things I had not done that everybody else had done, so that was special about me, and now I don't have that anymore, so there's nothing special. And so um, <laughs> it also came with a consequence. My mom had bought me a True Love weights ring when I was 15 that I used to wear every day, and um, I remember, like, I just kept wearing it, you know, even though it was a lot, because I was so scared if I didn't wear it that she would know what I had done. And so every day, I would get out of the shower, I'd take it off before I got in the shower, when I'd get done getting ready, I'd put it back on, and I'd just feel pathetic, you know, like, I'm such a liar, and I'm such a faker, and all these people think that I'm still a good girl, and I'm not a good girl, and um, I knew I was going to have to tell somebody, like, that I dated in the future what I had done, and so, um, so then I convinced myself, okay, so if I just stay with this guy and I marry him one day, then I can still tell people that I was only with one person, you know. So I tried so hard to make that relationship work and failed miserably. And eventually I finally broke up with him, which was a great thing. Um, but I still knew that I, there were consequences that I had to face. And, and the guilt and shame, y'all, like, when I say consuming, like, it was all I thought about. I kept it so quiet that I had done that. I only told one person, my best friend, Amber. So everybody at school still thought I was such a good girl, and it was just so fake. 
So my junior year, Trey and I started hanging out with a bunch of the same friends that we used to hang out with, and, um, and Trey wanted to be my boyfriend again. So he started asking me out, and he had to ask me out a bunch of times because I kept telling him I just couldn't date him. And I wouldn't tell him why, which is just mean, but I would just say, I can't. He'd be like, will you be my girlfriend? I'd be like, I can't. And then we'd go on, and then a week or two later, he'd ask me again. I'd be like, I just can't. And it was so sad, y'all. Like, I was mean. Um, so one night, he, he told me after a basketball game, listen, I'm going to ask you one more time if you'll be my girlfriend. And if you don't answer me tonight, I ain't asking you again. So I ignored him and got in my car and drove home. And when I got home, he called me, and um, he's like, Ashley, I, just, I don't understand. Like, why will you not just say you'll be my girlfriend? And I remember I was just crying. I was like, I just can't. I have to tell you what I did. And he already knew because, I mean, I had acted so weird. And he just straight up asked me, did you have sex with him? And I was like, yeah, I did, and I'm so sorry. And then I hung up on him. And then he called me back a couple times and turned my phone off. And so... <laughs> I was, like, hysterically crying, and no one could figure out what was wrong with me at my house. And my mom was like, do you want me to call Amber? Like, I don't know what to do. So Amber came and spent the night with me on a school night. And um, so the next day, I walked into school, and uh, we had we have lockers right beside each other, right inside the door. And so I waited to the last possible minute, walked in, walked right past him, didn't speak to anyone, and went to class. But I had like third or fourth period with Trey. So the whole time I was trying to think, how can I get out of class? I don't want to have to go sit with him. I don't want him to talk to me. I don't want to ever see him again. He hates me. Because um, I, I didn't know if he was just going to be really, 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 really mad at me or if he's going to be really devastated and heartbroken. But either way, I knew it was going to be disappointed. So I was sitting in class. And I know sometimes you can have your phone out now. But back then, you absolutely could not. You weren't even supposed to bring them to school in your purse. But I was sitting there with, like, my head down, trying to figure out how I'm going to get out of third period. And my phone lit up in my purse. So I'm, like, sneaking, trying to figure out what it is. And it's a text from him. And it said, basically, I know you're having a bad day. But, Ashley, when you walked into school today, I saw the same Ashley that I see every other day. And I hope your day gets better. And I told him years later, after I came to know Jesus, like, that was the biggest example of Jesus I had ever seen. Like, like someone living out Jesus to me and showing me grace and mercy. And like, like we say all the time, go be Jesus. Like, that was, that was being Jesus. So, um, you know, Trey knows this about me. He's the only other person that knows it. And I'm still faking it to everyone else. And, and so then um, we... You know, we start, keep dating through college, and I end up getting saved when I'm 20. I was on the phone with him one night, and, um, and I gave my life to Jesus. Remember, I didn't even know what getting saved was. Um, and, you know, I'd love to say, oh, and that day I just gave over all that guilt and shame, and I never felt that way again, but that would be a lie. Like, a, there was a lot of relief, a lot of, a lot of weight off my shoulders, but it was still there. Like, that part I was still dealing with, and so I was like, gosh, like, why can't God take that away? I don't really understand that. And I was just so frustrated. And then I thought, you know, well, maybe one day when I get married, I'll, it'll go away and I'll just feel better about it. But you know what? It didn't happen then either. Um, so I just, I just carried this guilt and shame all the time, all the time. Um, and I, I didn't know what to do about it. So here's the deal. I knew that God had forgiven me and I knew that I didn't have to carry that around, but I didn't know how to stop. And I was still terrified of what other people were going to think of me. So some of us girls had a girl slumber party for the youth girls that Matt let me help at. And I was one of the speakers that weekend. 
and I was married at this time. And let me tell you guys, it came with other consequences. I would like freak out thinking that God was never going to bless me in my sexual life when I was married because I had ruined everything in the past. Like it's, I'm just never going to enjoy this. This is never going to be good. It's going to be awful. And I just, false fears all the time. And so at this slumber party, some of you were there. Some of you, y'all were there. Um, We told the girls, bad idea, that you could write down any question you wanted to and put it in a jar for us. And at the end of the night, we're going to have this chill session, and we would just answer any of your questions, which was a terrible idea. Terrible. And and here's here's what I said. We're just going to be so honest and real and vulnerable. We'll answer anything you ask. So guess what one of the questions was? Have any of you ever had sex before? And at the time, I was married. So I could have been like, yeah, I have, but I'm married. And I could have lied. But... um. But that's, that, that would be wrong. And so um, we were doing what good leaders do, and we were reading through all the questions while the girls were downstairs eating their snacks so that we'd be prepared and wouldn't be blindsided. And, um, and somebody pulled that question out, and immediately I was like, I'm not answering that. And immediately after that, I was like, no, I have to answer that. Like, I just told these girls, we'll be honest and real and vulnerable. And so I, I admitted it to that whole room of girls, and... Um, And I know the Lord used that that night because I've had conversations with people since then. Some of those girls had already made that mistake. Some of them were thinking about making that mistake. Some of them were the only one in their friend group that hadn't made that mistake. And so I know the Lord used it. And that night is the night that I started finding healing and restoration. We laid down for for bed that night, and a bunch of the girls were up and in other rooms and being loud. And I just remember laying there praying, like, Lord, like, this is what you've had for me. I, I could have found this, like, Years ago, you have wanted to heal and restore me, and I've just been holding on to it, and I was so tired of that. So, basically, I'm about to finish. Um, Two Sundays ago, when Trey asked me to do this, uh, he had put off asking me for days, even though the Lord had put it on his heart. Um, And so, I I knew immediately that I was going to speak. I'm not scared to tell you all what I did. It's part of who I am, and the Lord knows I did it, and um, I'm not scared to tell you, but like immediately it was that, you're not enough, you're not enough. That message isn't going to be good enough. It would be better if you just let Trey speak that night. You're not going to get the point across. Um, and that whole service Sunday night, I couldn't pay attention because like I was just, I felt like I was right back where I was. I was just consumed with that guilt and shame, and the whole service, I just wanted to cry. And I was like, this is not who I am. Like, God has... He has healed me. Like, I don't have to feel this. And I was mad. And so I got my car to drive home that night. And the Lord made it so clear to me that he was reminding me of those feelings because a lot of you in this room are dealing with them right now. I know you are. You're walking around in this guilt and shame and thinking you're never going to get out of it and you can never fix it. And you're, you're never going to find a good godly man or woman. And that's not necessarily true. I wish, I wish so bad there was a light bulb over everyone's head in here and I could magically turn everyone on that's above someone's head that has sinned sexually outside of marriage. I think you would be astonished at how many lights would be on around you and possibly above your head. I think you'd be amazed because it's so common and it's so real, but we try to pretend like it's not happening. So maybe you made a mistake and you're probably thinking, well, great, Ashley, good job. You did that with one person. Go you. Well, I've done that with three people or five people or seven people or 10 people or 15 people. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's all the same.
I'm sorry. It doesn't matter what mistake you've made or how many times you've made it because the consequences, they come with it. And someone may choose not to date you one day because of it. And you may feel like you can't get past it and you may never know if you're ever going to get past this guilt and shame. But you guys, our God is bigger than that. He's so much bigger than that. And he can provide healing and restoration that you didn't even know was possible because he makes all things new. And guys, he takes delight in you. And he takes delight in giving you that healing and restoration. You are not defined by your sin. You're defined by him and him alone. And letting these sins just overrun you and rule your life, that's not what he wants for you. So here's the deal. Tonight, Trey's having an invitation. There are a lot of people in this room that the Lord wants to do stuff in and through. And so, you know, there's going to be a lot of you that either need to be at this altar talking to God or you need to grab one of our life support people. That's what they're here for. They're here for you because they love you. So life support, when we get ready, I want a couple of you up front and then a couple of you in back. If you want to come up front and pray with them, you can. If you want to grab one and go to a Sunday school room and talk and pray with them, you can. Like, there's freedom to do whatever you want to do. But so the, the people that need to do something tonight. There are those in this room that have committed these exact same type of sins. And tonight, you need to accept God's forgiveness for the first time. You need to truly accept the fact that he forgives you and he loves you and he can heal you. And you're, maybe you're already a Christian and you just need to Give that over to him. Because I was a Christian for years before I gave that over to him. There's some of you in this room that are in a really bad relationship that you know you don't need to be in. And you know it needs to end. And you need to talk to God about it and see what you need to do. There's some of you in this room that are single. And maybe you've never had this problem. And maybe you just need to pray for protection in that area for future relationships. So just because you come up to the altar, it doesn't mean you've had sex outside of marriage. Don't care what people think. There are some of you here that maybe this isn't your big sin that you're holding on to. Maybe it's an entire different sin that has nothing to do with sexual immorality. But tonight you have heard God's forgiveness is bigger than anything that you've done, and you need to give that over to him. But there's some in this room that were like me, and you don't know Jesus, and you don't know what it means to be saved, and you don't know what it means to be a follower of Christ and to give him your heart. And tonight... God's drawing you to himself, and you need to respond. Because, see, I did that. When I was sitting in my room that night, I knew God was drawing me to himself, but I didn't understand it. So I chose. I chose to ask Trey questions. I knew I wasn't on a path that was going to lead me to heaven. So I chose to ask questions. I allowed him to explain it to me. And for some of y'all, that's the first step you need to take tonight because whatever healing or restoration you're looking for in whatever area of life, it starts with that. And if you skip that step, you're not going to find what you're looking for. So here's the thing. Last thing I'm going to say, and I'll give him the mic back. Tonight, I'm going to leave here knowing that I was obedient and that I did exactly what the Lord wanted me to do. And I want every one of you to be able to leave here and know that you were obedient and did what God was telling you to do tonight. I don't want you to leave here and think, gosh, I wish I would have responded. Or, man, I'll, I'll talk to somebody next week. Leave obedient tonight, okay? If you think about what we just saw in Scripture, and you reflect it back to verse 3, God's Word told us that the Pharisees brought this woman and they placed her in the midst of Jesus. What they didn't realize was is that they had just done the best thing that they had 
could possibly do for this woman. They brought her, and they placed her in the midst of Jesus. So do you see that? The very ones who deceived her, the very ones who accused her, the very ones who condemned her, were the very ones that brought her into the place and into the presence of the only one who had the power to restore her. They placed her within his midst. And guess what? We're in his midst tonight. What an amazing message of forgiveness and restoration. We're never so broken that God can't repair. We encourage you to stop carrying your guilt, shame, and condemnation and run towards love, forgiveness, and restoration that is only found in Jesus.